Good morning, afternoon, evening, or night, whenever it is that you're actually listening to this. And happy 2023. This is Dan Teets bringing you another throwback episode of Be Kind Rewind, your Disney Plus movie podcast. Today's Old School Saturday is the second in the Real Life Adventure episodes where Dan and Icky discussed the Vanishing Prairie. Hope you enjoy it. Hi ho, hi ho, it's off to work we go. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, greenest state in the land of the free. Raised in the woods so he knew every tree, killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett. Welcome, 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 friends, neighbors, Romans, countrymen, people of Italy, people of El Salvador. Welcome to another fine, feathered edition of Be Kind Rewind, your Disney podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dan Teets, and joining me tonight is the other inimitable host, Ichabod Bones. What's up, party people? It's a great day today. It is a great day. It is the start of a weekend. When you listen to this, it might be a Saturday morning, it might be a Sunday night, it might be a Wednesday night. We don't know when you do, but we're just glad that you joined us because we are back to nature documentaries. Hip, hip. Tonight's episode is The Vanishing Prairie. It was released August 17th, 1954. It did $1.75 million in box office revenue, which was just under $17 million in today's revenue, which I think just about any movie out there would be loving to have right now. Am I right? Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I take it this was your first time watching this since it's a um, Disney's 50 nature documentary. Yeah, I'm loving this series, but I've never seen any of them before. Yeah, it was it was my first time, too. And seeing as this was the second in the series, I kind of knew what to expect. So it kind of lowered my expectations a little. So that way it didn't (laughs) fall off the edges at the very end. But yeah. I mean we will we will get into the actual meat and meat and bones and gizzards and lizards of the actual um oh. of the actual show in just a few moments. So the synopsis goes a little something like the movie just like The Living Prairie begins with a painter painting a picture this time of the United States. The painter splits the U.S. into three parts. The east separated from the middle by the Mississippi and the west separated by the, from the middle by the Rockies. And then he describes the middle, or the narrator describes the middle as the American Prairie. And so we see several scenic shots of the American Prairie, including Courthouse Rock, 
Chimney Rock, Scott's Bluff, Independence Rock, and finally Devil's Gate, which ultimately leads to the Continental Divide. Then the painter comes back and starts painting an Indian tapestry of uh, American buffalo, antelope, rabbits, and prairie dogs before he shows several other animals. And then we cut to a scene where thousands of birds are actually shown crisscrossing the sky, which begins with ducks sliding across a frozen pond, and then it shows other ducks actually docks ducks, excuse me, actually touching down on a thawed pond. Other birds are shown before we see, before we're introduced to the mating ritual of the western greb, grebe, I'm not really sure how you pronounce that. It's spelled G-R-E-B-E. Please drop me an email if y'all know how to spell this at be kind re or pronounce this at be kind rewind dmp at gmail.com. So it's explained that these birds have interval hatching. So it's up to both parents to actually take care of the nest and the already hatched bird. Then we cut to a whooping crane and then a sandhill crane and we see their mating rituals shown as the male throws twigs in the air to try to impress his potential mate. Then we see several different kinds of grouses. We see the sage grouse, the prairie grouse, and the sharp trailed grouse, and they all show their distinctive courting rituals. And it's actually commented here that the Indians imitated the grouse for part of their um, native war dance. Then we cut to the symbol of the prairie, which is the buffalo. And if we see several newborn calves, and then we actually are welcomed, I guess, to watch a birthing of an actual newborn calf and the calf itself is covered in a membrane which the mother eats which is for two reasons one of which is to actually help her start milk production and it is also so that there's no remnant of the afterbirth that'll alert predators of their um, actual location. A series of funny shorts are shown where the newborn calf is shown repeatedly falling over each time he gets up with the encouragement of his mother. And in this particular portion of the show ends with the herd of buffalo moving off and stopping by a water hole. And then we actually see the pronghorn antelope and they get to show off their grace and their speed. And then after this we cut to the bighorn sheep and they're actually shown easily climbing the cliff and the rock faces. And after this, we actually see the first predator, which is the mountain lion. It's explained that he can cover several hundred miles in his roaming, and a mature mountain lion can weigh 200 pounds. One mountain lion spots a deer and begins to stalk. He moves in close to chase so that its chase will be short. And just as most Disney movies have previous to this, there was an off-screen death, which, and then we cut to the mountain lion family having their dinner. And it's explained that the mountain lion will not kill its food, or will not kill when they don't need food. And after a mountain lion loses its spots, it's sent out to begin to fend for itself. And it's because of this that we actually are shown a newborn deer, and one of the um, young mountain lion cubs, I guess, is trying to track down the scent. 
and the spots on the back of the deer serve as a defense mechanism as well as the fawn actually having no scent for the lion to be able to locate it. Next up in the movie are the prairie dogs and we spend a lot of time with the prairie dogs. It's said that the prairie dog is constantly building their new tunnels or repairing old ones and at the age of six weeks the young prairie dogs finally make their way from the den to the surface. And it's explained that, ter that prairie dogs are very territorial and they have to defend their lair from all sorts of animals including owls, uh, rattlesnakes, a uh, pocket gopher, and several other animals. And then we actually see what happens when the prairie dog has to deal with each of those. And it ends with the with a rattlesnake um, trying to move in among the owlets. And it's explained that the snake is more willing to eat a prairie dog than an owl. And it can't stand too much sun, so it slithers off to attack another time. Oh, and I forgot about the last predator of the prairie dogs, which is the ferret. And the ferret actually hops down into the um, prairie dog hole and is soon lost because of the maid. And then we actually see the coyote, not wild E coyote, super genius, just regular coyote, normal dog and it explains that and the narrator explains that its diet consists mainly of the prairie dog as does the brat as does the badger and the prairie dog's teeth are a way for it to stay alive against the coyote and so the coyote tries to attack the prairie dog and is unsuccessful so it takes off after a jackrabbit but it can't get that and then the coyote happens upon the rattlesnake that we saw earlier and it shows him killing it and bringing it home for dinner. And then we see the male badger come along and he distracts the female badger that's been trying to harass the prairie dog. And because of all this, the um, prairie dogs rejoice for, for not having to worry about being dinner for anyone. And I'm sorry, there was a couple of more um, predators for the prairie dogs, we have the prairie falcon, which is the final one, and it swoops down and all the prairie dogs actually run for cover. And then we cut back to the buffalo, which it's explained that the buffalo love to roll on the soft earth of the prairie dog. And after we see them roll around, we get into the mating ritual of the buffalo, and it comes to a head when one buffalo is gored at the, by the other's horns. And all of the mating comes to an end because of a sudden summer storm which causes a buffalo stampede and the prairie actually erupts in flame because of a bolt of lightning hitting in the dry grass and as a result of the rain or as a result of the rainstorm there is a flood which causes all the animals that can to head for higher ground and the final animals that are actually shown is the bighorn sheep and you actually hear the sound of their horns resonating through the Rocky Mountain. And the movie itself ends with snow sweeping across the plains as the narrator states that the vanishing pageant of the past may become the enduring pageant of the future and this ends your movie. So, like I said, 
in the beginning this was the second nature documentary so we kind of knew what we were expecting coming into the coming into the beginning of this and i have to say i enjoyed it yeah it was it was entertaining it, it was it was another it was another one that made you sit down and appreciate what nature was doing even though mother nature can be a shall we say cruel mistress with the way that some of the things are treated <laughs> i mean too graphic too harsh in the way nature handles itself in a way that only disney can do that's true and i actually think that the the very end of the very end of the movie where where the narrator comes on and says the vanishing pageant of the past may become the enduring pageant of the future i think that pretty much sums up the way that this one worked because it was i mean it started off with the buffalo and pretty much showed that the buffalo were trying to come back and i think in the 50 years since this has been um since this was filmed they've definitely staged a huge comeback on it on the on the prairies those are bison not buffalo totally different animal i'm sorry explain to me what a buffalo is then because i thought the buffalo and the bison were like long lost cousins from her mother's uncles nephews they may be be, but my understanding is buffalo are uh, maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm just totally off base but buffalo are like more like a yak like what you see over in asia Hmm. like with the the longer horns more almost more like a like a longhorn steer or something like that whereas a bison is more you know like what we consider buffalo let me know in the send us an email let me know if i just am completely wrong but (laughs) i was always taught that the song the buffalo roam there never were any buffalo roaming in in the united states that was a misnomer but anyway i digress no please don't i don't like sometimes don't digress go on with what you were saying because because that that's that's the whole times that this i think we have a lag and we're stepping on each other sorry about that go ahead sir I just felt like it kind of, uh, it seemed a little bit staged, these triangles, underground with the the warthogs, not the warthogs, but whatever they were, the weasels and the ferrets and everything, climbing underground. You know, it had to be a piece of glass in between, or how did they get shots of the, what was there, a, a coyote or something that was trying to, trying to nip at the little, the little rodent, I don't remember what it was. Like, it just seemed like there's no way that these scenes could be real without being curated is that the right word without being falsely created like i grew up watching mutual of omaha and watching the old the real quote-unquote real documentaries and it it just it wasn't the same this seemed like a, a i guess a disney-fied version which is what it is but i just noticed as a child watching documentaries that this one seemed to be like it were like the stage and they and there were animal handlers them to to do the things that they were doing and it wasn't wasn't real like it would be in nature well it's actually interesting that you that you brought that up because i noticed like in several different points where it was the it was the prairie dogs that you were talking about right right where you'd see like a part of the actual den but it wasn't i mean it was like a it was like when you're when you're when you're dealing with you're dealing with a um, patient and you have to cut them. You dissect 
that's that's the word I'm looking for. You dissect the actual cave so that way you could see what was going on inside of it. But I don't know how you would do that with without having the having the animal actually realize what's going on. So it might have been that they had the wranglers trying to push the prairie dogs through like the pieces of the of their dens and things like that. It's like a huge prairie dog ant farm, right? Like I picture like a big piece of glass with a the prairie dog den and they're just looking at the glass and filming it. I think that's the best way to put it. So so where do we go to get one of those huge things cuz I would love to have like 30 or 40 prairie dogs and then as they have their babies you sell them off to make money to be able to buy more prairie dogs. <laughs> right. Um I mean it it's a but whether or not it was staged or not it did it did what it was supposed to do. It gave you a slice of life and with these it was more than just one day like it was with the um what the living desert was that what the one in the first one was called yeah this one seemed like it was almost over a year time span because parts of the show was actually done with snow i want to say and then you had the snow melt which caused the torrential well the snow didn't cause the torrential downpours, but the snow caused the floods when it mixed with the downpours. And then you had all of them running for cover as if it was the very end of Bambi when the when the forest fires caught. And actually, there was a forest fire right. in this one, too. Or a, pra- a prairie fire or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of, well, I mean, this was well before PETA got involved in anything. Because if... This would be filmed today. You'd have PETA on set saying, well, now you can't have the prairie dogs get injured because they have souls and they and they mean something to each other. And so they have to have their own union rep, so to speak. Exactly. They work 15 minutes and they get a break. Yes. So, I mean... I guess it was good that Walt Disney did the did these back when they didn't have quite as many regulations on the controlling of the animals and making sure that no animals were injured in the making of this film. Yeah. Because that was one thing that I don't think I remember seeing when the when the film was over. Of course I was still busily typing notes on the synopsis, so I <laughs> might have missed that no animals were actually harmed in the making of this movie but i don't think i remember was there anything that any animals that were actually killed in this one well we saw the fight with the uh that the rattlesnake oh yeah what was it that kept throwing him up in the air and slamming him down that was the um that was a coyote or something well yeah it was the coyote and then the then they also had a prairie falcon that tried to attack the prairie dog oh yeah Came swooping down. Yeah. So, and I mean, in that same vein, when you had a brand new newborn Bambi, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it really was, yeah. It did, I mean, that could have turned out a whole lot more grisly than than it actually did with the, with the prairie lion or the mountain lion or the bobcat or the lynx or whatever the, the name is for it wherever you're living. When you were growing up, because I think they said like six or seven different names for that one. But um, I'm trying to think. There wasn't actually, there was violence, but it wasn't to the Thank you for listening to this podcast. extent where 
if you would like to send us an email, you can do so at It wasn't so much like in the last one where you had a tarantula killing all the insects to walk past it. DMP stands for Disney Movie Podcast. Insects, that's a little bit different because nobody really cares about them quite as much as they do about the living animals. Yeah, true. But trying to think if there was anything else that I could think of before we get into the actual... The important impacts of the um, of the movie, because there was actually a couple of notes that I wrote down on that. The one thing that I the one thing that I um, picked up, well, I picked up several. The first one is no matter what, get back up if you get knocked down. Which I mean that that held true when you had the rainstorm come in, because you because you can't have a. I mean, if you don't work to survive, you're not going to have a society to deal with for the future and i think you mentioned it on the last that i think the narrator said in nature no creature is is labeled as good or bad didn't you say that in the the last in the last um documentary that no creature is labeled as good or bad as my dog does not like that right now yeah (laughs) yeah i don't like it's it's in the eye yeah yeah and then you also have the fact that everything has to have an equal chance to survive yeah and i mean this is this is we're talking about 10 or 15 years before the hippie movement really moves in so you can start to see a little bit of that actually starting with the starting with the actual well everything's good there's nothing really bad Everything's got to have its own thing to, own chance to survive, man. And, <laughs> totally. And then we got nature endows its creatures with the ability to meet any crisis and survive. In the case of the flood, one must simply know how to swim, and nature gives us all all its create creatures that ability. So, I mean, does that does that mean that that if you throw any any critter in the river is going to swim? Or is that just... <laughs> That's how I learned how to swim. Somebody picked you up and tossed you in the creek? Kaboom. <laughs> um, Alright. Well, let's go ahead and move on. Of course, this... I mean, this is another one where... With what's going on in society and in the world right now... It's important to, to take a look at the... At, nature and make sure that it's going to survive because without trees and without plants we're not going to survive so this kind of needs yeah. to be um mirrored in the circle of life <laughs> and of course we have mentioned that if this were filmed today we would have PETA on site making sure that no animals were actually filmed were actually filmed in the harming of this movie wait what <laughs> the umpires are striking the ball the balls are striking the umpire. <laughs> but yeah, if if it were redone today by Walter Elias Disney the seventeenth, you would have to have Peter reps and you would have them any time that like the smallest prairie dog were being attacked by a coyote, they would be getting in the middle and say, We can't film this. We're gonna have to cut this off right now, put a pin in it, we can't deal with it anymore. I don't know, are our nature documentaries still a thing? I mean, do they still do they still do them? I mean, you got National Geographic, right? Do they still do them? I don't know. 
Well, I mean, Walt Disney does one every year that they release on Earth Day, which I don't think there was an Earth Day this year. Was there? Or was it a duck and cover day? Yeah, I think they just didn't celebrate it, but I think it it happened, I guess. So, I mean, I think, well, I mean, would... That that actually does bring up a good point. Not the fact that there wasn't an Earth Day, but um, I mean, would you if you were to redo this, would you have to worry about whether or not the groundhog is going to get caught by the eagle? Yeah, I don't. I I think it's too well. I don't know because on the one hand, you see things on TV now that were far too graphic to be shown on TV. 30, 40 years ago, like mm-hmm. take your average crime scene drama movie where they can show an operation on the table and actually show graphic organs being cut and, and the heart beating, and you actually see it on your average crime show. But, you know, back in the day when we were growing up, they would never show, they would just show someone on the operating table in the doctor's hands, but you would never see what was going on. So in that vein, I think TV has gotten more accepting, more liberal, if you will, hmm. on what they'll show. But then, so like in today's society, you have you have telescopic lenses where you could literally be a mile away and you could record a, a fight between, you know, a bobcat and a porcupine or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't have to worry about being too close because you, you're so far away. It seems to me like it would be acceptable. I mean, look at the violence that we see on, on TV now. So I, that's, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't think it could be staged like we purport that it, that it was, this filming. I think yeah. you would actually have to catch wildlife in the wild but just at a far enough distance i just know that growing up i thought that documentaries were boring nature documentaries and this one was actually interesting they added enough to it to make it worth watching and even watching again yeah it it'll it will definitely be in the in the rewatch category one thing you mentioned the the line from where the deer and the antelope play and the buffalo roam did you catch that all throughout this documentary they were actually playing that as the as the underlying music? I did not. No. I mean, of course, when you had the buffalo or the bison or the prairie cows, I guess that's what that's what we should call <laughs> them. So that way we don't offend any of our nature loving people. That yeah. I mean, I know there was like four or five different parts of the movie that I that I was just watching and then all of a sudden I'd hear yeah maybe now that you mention it and I was like okay so are they trying to tell us that life on the range is not all that man has kicked it out to be or what are they trying to say with the with the underlying music yeah one other thing before before we put a put a bow on this and put it into the archives for people to listen to, did you notice how many things were actually just called prairie and then whatever? <laughs> it was like the prairie dog, the prairie falcon, the prairie fox, the prairie sheep. <laughs> yeah, it's like brer rabbit, bear fox, bear brer frog, <laughs> brer yeah, brer porcupine. <laughs> yeah. I'm just I'm I'm looking back through my notes and I'm like how many times did I actually say the word prairie in this that was not actually referring to the living prairie it was it was <laughs> it was several times I mean I think there was yeah, there was actually a type of grouse that was a prairie grouse 
<laughs> that was actually called a prairie chicken. So. You have anything else to add on this epic of modern cinematic master that was the the vanishing prairie? Speaking of grouse, I thought it was interesting how they said that the Native Americans would mimic the dance of the grouse in their dances, and they kind of played some some Native American sounding music while the grouses were flouncing around. The grouses? The grice? I don't know. Degrassi? What? <laughs> Degrass Tyson? Yes, Neil Degrass Tyson, in his native, native mating ritual, is now shown. <laughs> Hello, ladies. <laughs> I don't even know what he sounds like. That's probably... And that's your horrible impersonation for the yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually... I'm, I'm intrigued as to why they actually start every one of these with, like, a a portrait painter actually starting to paint. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, you think about your normal, quote-unquote, boring nature document. We see the lion stalking the <laughs> cheetah, who is also stalking the prairie antelope. You don't, you don't start that with the, with the man painting something like a, like a buffalo on the side of a cave wall. Yeah. So, I mean, was that... I think it goes it... back to trying to entertain the whole family, right? Yeah. I don't know That's... if it's just me, but I wanna, when I grew up in the 80s, my grandparents would always watch the Mutual of Omaha documentaries, and I thought, this is so boring. Why do we have to watch this? Oh, can't we watch Masters of the Universe or G.I. Joe or some <laughs> Thundercats, whatever? But they were watching the Mutual of Omaha, and I was like, this is... this Just poke out my eyes now. And it was so boring. So maybe Disney was trying to make it a little bit more palatable for the younger folk, keep them intrigued. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. No, I don't. I don't think it's you because if that were the case, then I don't think that I would have brought it up. It was just you. That it, that because it, <laughs> I mean Disney has a way of sucking you in from moment number one of a lot of these movies because I yes. think. Because we were, I mean, we're talking the mid '50s. They've been doing this for almost 20 years now, and I mean, of course, a few of them were veritable doobie sensations. Go back and listen to our Fantasia podcast. <laughs> and oh yeah, I mean, oh yeah, and of course, don't get me started on Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> but who I mean, are you who? <laughs> but. I mean, with with any of these, it's it was a. I mean, it had something for everybody. It had it had something for the mutual of Omaha people. It had something for the kids because they're wanting to see the the little baby. Um, I think there was baby foxes. There was baby prairie dogs. And then of course you had the the fights, which would be for your UFC fighters, and and the WWE yeah. watchers. And I mean, it had something for. It had something for everything, for every member of the family. So it was definitely a, um, it was something that, that, that you could take your kids out to watch and not have to worry about seeing anything that you weren't prepared to see. Not that in 1950 you would be seeing any kind of hardcore blood, violence, shoot 'em ups because those don't actually hit until the 60s with the Spaghetti West. Those are fun. And speaking of fun... Our next episode is definitely not that this wasn't, because our next episode, for those of you who love the homework that we give you, is 
20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It was your first science fiction, steampunk, whatever you want to call it, romp through the through half of the world. So that is your look forward to what you have to watch next week. Um, do you have anything else before we before we sign off on this one? I like when the little prairie dogs were kind of chirping at the end and they made it like they were singing because they did have a tune and they kind of auto-tuned, maybe not auto-tuned, but they got different pitches of chirping and made it sound like they were singing right before the bird swoops in to send them all running, I think, right? But they were yeah. almost like they were singing. So I was like, yeah, that's that's not real. But again, that just had that little Disney touch. that they're And they were even harmonizing. It was like, whoa, okay. Wait a minute, Walt Disney created auto-tune? So we have him yeah. to blame for the for the wonderful <laughs> music that is out there today, man. No! Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Disney. Okay, well, with that, we will go ahead and put a bow on it. You've got your reading assignment. Yeah, your reading assignment. Well, actually, it is your reading assignment because this is a Jules Verne movie. I'm really just messing up this outro. Your your next assignment is a Jules Verne movie based on a book, based on a screenplay. Well, wait, hold on. It is 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And until then, drop us an email. Let Mike know if he was right on the buffalo or the bison or if it's just a prairie cow. Prairie cow. That sounds good. We'll go with prairie cow. I like that. Okay. And our email... It has not changed. It is BeKindRewindDMP at gmail.com. And as always, the DMP stands for Your Disney Movie Podcast. So until next week, stay safe, stay hungry, and keep on chomping them pellets. Thank you for listening. You can send us feedback at BeKindRewindDMP at gmail.com. We welcome any kind of feedback and it might get read on the air in a future podcast. Once again, the email address is BeKindRewindDMP at gmail.com. If you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast on whatever streaming service you are listening to us on. This and word of mouth are the two ways to help us reach a larger audience. Thank you in advance for doing this. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have a great day. Goodbye. Yeah, we talked about that. The third Thursday of last week. <laughs> Whoops. It's the multiverse is possible.